Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Later, we'll hear from the United States border with Mexico about the crisis surrounding tens of thousands of children from Central America who've arrived unaccompanied to seek refuge in the US. But we begin in the Middle East, where after a week of airstrikes on Gaza, Israel has accepted an Egyptian proposal for a truce. The Palestinian Islamist group Hamas has not yet accepted the deal, which involves an immediate ceasefire, followed by talks in Cairo with high-level delegations from both sides. The Israeli operation has killed at least 178 people in Gaza, most of them civilians and including dozens of children, and injured more than a 1,000. No Israelis have died, although Palestinian militants have fired more than 700 rockets into Israel in the past week. So what are the prospects of an end to the violence? To find out, I'm joined from Jerusalem by our correspondent, Mark Weiss, and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith. Mark, what exactly is the Egyptian proposal for a truce? It was a proposal uh, introduced uh, last night, uh, whereby uh, both sides would cease uh, hostile activity from uh, 9 o'clock this morning. Uh, The this would enable the parties to begin uh, substantive talks on a wider deal, which would include a relief for uh, the Gaza Strip and easing the blockade and humanitarian gestures, etc. Why has Israel accepted the deal? Um, well, first of all, um, Israel from the beginning said it, it's it aims to uh, restore quiet for Israeli citizens. So uh, it would be difficult, uh, bearing that in mind, to reject any kind of ceasefire um, from the Israeli point of view. The second reason, of course, is that it does grant Israel uh, legitimacy uh, uh, internationally. Israel now uh, will certainly play itself as the party that has accepted the ceasefire deal, whereas Hamas has rejected it. And the Prime Minister speaking uh, this morning made it clear that um, that was the situation. And if the Hamas fire uh, continues, and it certainly is continuing uh, um, as we speak, then Israel would have legitimacy to continue and intensify its military campaign. And what uh, have Hamas actually been saying in response to the deal? Well, uh, the ceasefire proposal, in a sense, was stillborn. It never got off the ground because... Uh, even by early this morning, Hamas representatives had made it clear that they do not accept the ceasefire. First of all, they were not even consulted. The Egyptians um, negotiated, if you like, with Israel and with the Palestinian Authority. Remember, uh, there is no love lost between the present uh, Egyptian regime and Hamas. Um, they're bitter enemies, put it that way. Um, and Hamas were in- definitely insulted that they were not even um, consulted by the Egyptians, they said that they cannot accept the Hamas military wing spokesman, so they cannot accept any deal um, that just uh, includes a ceasefire without uh, a more general agreement that includes an ending of uh, the Israeli blockade and an Egyptian commitment to open its border crossing with Gaza at Rafah. Uh, Other Hamas officials are also insisting that Israel release uh, Hamas militants 
that were freed in an earlier prisoner swap with Israel and have been rearrested over recent weeks in the West Bank. Now, the Palestinian rockets have continued to be fired into Israel today. The, uh, the, the Egyptian deal offers a, a 12-hour window uh, beyond which uh, it has to be implemented. If these rockets keep coming, what exactly is Israel likely to do? If the rocket fire continues, uh, and as I said, it is at the moment, there's been no let-up, then I think it's a matter of time before Israel will respond militarily unless um, there is significant uh, movement towards a wider ceasefire agreement that will uh, be accepted by Hamas. Uh, Paddy, uh, Paddy Smith, uh, Mark there was saying that Israel hoped to gain perhaps some interla- international legitimacy by accepting this ceasefire proposal. Do you think that will actually work for them? Well, I think it's, it's far more difficult for the international community to complain uh, if Israel does resume uh, its, its attacks on Gaza. And particularly, and, and this, is the, this is perhaps the terrifying thing, if, if, it, if it gets involved in the land invasion, that um, the, the failure of Hamas to accept, apparently, um, the agreement, though we still to see a few, a few more hours uh, to see whether they actually come around to it. Um, does give the Israelis a a degree of legitimacy internationally. And this uh, role of the Egyptians in attempting to broker something, even if they haven't involved Hamas, how promising is that as a route forward uh, in, in a broader sense with regard to Israel and the Palestinians? Well, of course, the the problem, as Mark says, is is that is that they are insisting on dealing with with the Palestinian Authority, and and uh, that uh, sort of suits Israel, which is continuing to refuse to accept the exist the the, the legitimacy of of, of Hamas. Um, I think one of the interesting there was an interesting piece in one of the Israeli papers this morning talking about uh, Netanyahu developing a, a new strategy, uh, what what they call a three state solution, in which. Uh, uh, this this plays into that. In fact, the permanent uh, division politically between um, Gaza and and the the West Bank and uh, any any talks that are based on a settlement with uh, the the Gaza community alone, in in a sense, consolidates that. Uh, as a as a longer term strategy, and certainly doesn't play into uh, um, uh, any kind of a peace deal. Mark Weiss, uh, how plausible is that notion that Netanyahu or people near him are actually considering something that that is like a kind of a three state deal with Gaza, the West Bank as separate entities, and Israel in between? Well, I, I would say the three state uh, idea is not something that Netanyahu is considering. It's basically uh, what exists de facto on the ground, and has existed ever since Hamas took over control of the Gaza Strip in 2007. Um, Hamas has a clearly defined geographical border. It has its own uh, elected government, the Hamas government. It has its own foreign policy, which is different uh, from that of the Palestinian Authority, which controls the West Bank. And it has its own security force. Uh, It is, um, in a sense, it's not an independent state. It's not recognized as such by the United Nations, but it has many of the components of an independent state. Uh, if you like, Hamastan, separate uh, and in- independent from uh, the West Bank, which is controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Of course, the two, uh, the two entities have recently agreed to support a unity government, 
and there will be uh, elections probably later this year in the West Bank and Gaza for a new Palestinian parliament. But um, only after the, this conflict ends and we see what the political fallout will be, will we know if that uh, new unity government will in fact survive and move forward. And meanwhile, in Israel itself, Mark, how has this uh, military campaign in Gaza been playing out politically? Um, of course, it's too early to say, but it, it must be stated that there is very significant opposition within Israel to uh, a ceasefire agreement, even though, as you said, the government endorsed it this morning. Uh, two ministers, particularly uh, Victor Lieberman, head of the far-right party, and um, sorry, our foreign minister uh, Victor Lieberman and Naftali Bennett, head of a far-right party, uh, are basically arguing that uh, this is the third conflict in six years between Israel and Gaza. Previous ceasefires agreements have lasted only about a year, a year and a half, and then we start again. Uh, and it's, it's, they would argue that it's time that um, Israel uh, put a stop to this. That means a ground invasion, toppling the Hamas regime in Gaza, uh, taking away their rocket uh, production facilities, and uh, ensuring, or hopefully ensuring, long-term quiet for the residents of Israel, particularly uh, in the southern communities closer to the Gaza Strip. Uh, many, many, you hear many people interviewed on the television and the radio in the bomb shelters saying they don't mind um, how long it takes. They're prepared to sit in the bomb shelters for a month, two months, as long as a long-term permanent solution, um, uh, once and for all, uh, is implemented after this round of, uh, of conflict. And if uh, Hamas doesn't actually accept this deal or a similar ceasefire deal, how likely do you think that such a scenario is, that you actually do have a ground invasion, that Israel does seek to take some kind of control of Gaza again? I think the ceasefire efforts are basically the last chance um, to avoid such a scenario. Israel does not want this. It's clear that the prime minister, the defense minister, and the army itself does not want to uh, in reinvade Gaza. This would cause a problem, not only very heavy Palestinian casualties, uh, presumably, but also a great danger to the Israeli troops, also the danger of militants kidnapping some of the soldiers there on the ground. This is not something Israel wants, but there are uh, thousands of troops remain poised on the border, and it's clear that if the ceasefire breaks down, well, it hasn't actually got off the ground, if the ceasefire fails to be implemented, this is, um, this is an option that Israel will probably have no choice but to implement. And finally, uh, Paddy, if uh, Israel does in fact implement this option so that there is a ground invasion with all of the, that that entails, uh, how do you think the international community is going to respond to that or react to it? I think that the international community will, will, will uh, condemn it, but probably understand it. And I think uh, the, the international community is, is in a very, very difficult uh, position. I mean, people will, will talk about the need to be proportionate and in terms of, of response to the violence against, against them. Uh, but there is relatively little that the international community can do. It certainly isn't going to implement sanctions against uh, Israel or, or, or anything like that. Paddy Smith here in Dublin and Mark Weiss in Jerusalem, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Tens of thousands of unaccompanied children, mostly from Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador, have arrived at the United States' southern border in recent months, creating a humanitarian crisis that has also become a political headache for President Barack Obama. 
Republicans say the president is to blame for the influx, accusing him of encouraging immigrants to believe that children would not be deported. And the issue is topping the political agenda ahead of November's midterm congressional elections. So what's it all about? I'm joined on the line now by our Washington correspondent, Simon Carswell, who's been to the southern border with Mexico to witness the crisis surrounding these children at first hand. Simon, could you tell us first who these children are and why so many of them are coming to America right now? Well, these children are coming, as you say, from three countries, uh, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Um, The numbers are huge, and they've increased uh, substantially in the last year. Um, The U.S. Border Patrol has made about more than 174,000 arrests of migrants, and most of these are from those countries. And a huge proportion are unaccompanied children. Uh, The U.S. officials have said that there's 57,000 unaccompanied children have tried to enter the U.S. since last October. And that's a tenfold increase on what the figure was three years ago. And the reason they're coming, a number of reasons, is that they're escaping um, increased gang violence in those countries. And many children are forced to join gangs at an early age. And if they don't, they face death threats or indeed death. Um, they're also escaping abject poverty in those countries. Um, also, the gangs, these coyotes as they're known in these countries, uh, these are the people trafficking gangs, the criminal gangs that um, uh, take advantage of these kids and say, you know, if you, to their families, if you give me $5,000, I can get your child into the U.S. And they're also encouraging the families to send their children north on the basis that they are sending around, um, there's a misinformation campaign going on. The gangs are telling the families, well, uh, President Obama will um, uh, accept you into, into the U.S. So once you get to the U.S. border with Mexico, it is a foregone conclusion that you will, you will gain asylum in the U.S. And, of course, that's not the case. That's not true. So how do they actually make the journey, these children, unaccompanied children, how do they make the journey from, say, a country like Honduras or Guatemala all the way up to the southern border of the United States? Well, when I was down in Murrieta in Southern California last week, I met one interesting woman. Her name was Mercedes Moreno, and she uh, explained to me that um, the criminal gangs uh, act as guides. They guide the children up. Uh, She spoke about the case of her own son, uh, Jose Leonidas Moreno, who actually disappeared in Mexico in 1991 en route to her when she was living in California at the time um, from El Salvador. And she explained that what they do is they guide the children up these gangs, they bring them right to the border, and they leave them just before uh, they come up to U.S. Border Patrol. So they're accompanied pretty much all of the way until they land at the border, and that's when they're unaccompanied. And that's that's what the problem that the U.S. administration is facing. These children are simply just walking into Border Patrol stations and uh, giving themselves up to Border Patrol uh, officers and officials. And what happens then, once they've given themselves up, what happens to the children? Well, what the U.S. administration has had to do is, and most of these migrants are coming through uh, the Rio Grande Valley, they're coming into southern Texas. Uh, they're being taken into detention centers and held. They're uh, checked. They're, uh, some of the older uh, the teenagers and, and some of the adults who would be traveling with the children are fingerprinted and checked and the criminal records checked and they're also given health checks. Um, and then they would be detained. And the trouble with the, uh, the reason this, this crisis has really been exacerbated here in the U.S. is that it relates to an anti-sex trafficking law passed by George W. Bush in 2008. And what that law does is that if you are not from Mexico or Canada, if you're from one of these Central American countries, you have under this law a right to an asylum hearing. You have a right to be heard before an immigration judge, and you have a right to be represented by an immigration advocate or a lawyer. 
um, and you can make your case then to claim asylum in the U.S. And the problem for the U.S. is that there's a major backlog in the immigration system. We heard last week there was a Senate hearing and the Department of Justice disclosed at that hearing that there are 375,000 cases waiting to be heard by 243 immigration judges. So there's a massive backlog, which means that these children that are arriving into the U.S. along the southern border are being detained for lengthy periods of time, in some cases up to two years. And for them, escaping violence at home in their home countries or escaping poverty, that is, in effect, uh, a solution for them. That is asylum for them. They're getting to stay in the U.S. by the unintended consequence of this law that was passed in 2008. And this law that was passed, as you say, in 2008, almost unanimously in a voice vote uh, in Congress and under President Bush, the Democrats say that that actually is the root of the problem. Is that, are they right when they say that? They are partly right. That, 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 that is indeed causing a lot of the problems. That's what's causing this backlog, backlog and that's what's preventing the U.S. from sending these children back. Um, they have to check whether there is a humanitarian case to grant them asylum in the U.S. And that process is very, very long, very protracted because of this delay and because of the shortage of judges. Now, in the last 24 hours, we've had two Texas lawmakers, uh, Senator John Cornyn and Henry Queller, came out and said that, well, this is the problem, uh, this law, and we're, we're going to introduce an amendment to the 2008 law um, which is intended to stop sex trafficking, but we recognize that it's caused problems. So what they're going to do is, is pass an amendment that will make it easier for children to be returned to their home countries. But meanwhile, the Republicans say that actually it's President Obama who's to blame, that he's been encouraging uh, people to believe that children will not be deported. Why do they say that? Well, any political issue on Capitol Hill at the moment, given the divisions, um, results in Republicans coming back with something against the president. And they say that his decision with what's known as the DREAM Act here in 2012 to stop immigrants who arrived as children before 2007 being deported, they say that that has added to the perception in Central America that the U.S. is open to child migrants and is not turning them away. That isn't, some, to some extent, correct. Uh, some of the immigration people that I was speaking to in Southern California last week said they are hearing reports from immigrants who are arriving from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, that they are hearing that, well, as a result of the Dream Act, that if they go to the U.S., um, that they will be allowed to stay. And that is, in part, mis- misinformation being put around by the criminal gangs looking to make substantial sums of money from families by bringing these children to the U.S. border. This is uh, obviously playing out in an election year, uh, midterm congressional elections coming up in November. Who's benefiting from this politically and who's it hurting? Well, politically, I think it's hurting the the Obama administration. Uh, Certainly a sense that they were caught unawares by this and that the the, the significant increase in the number of children arriving at the southern border surprised the Obama administration. So the Republicans are making hay as a result of this. I think the big loser in all of this is less the political parties, but more the prospects of anything, any kind of immigration reform or indeed comprehensive immigration reform passing uh, U.S. Congress. As you know, there was a bipartisan bill passed in the Senate, um, in the Democratic-controlled Senate, that, but that bill is stalled in the House of Representatives, which is controlled by Republicans. Republicans don't want comprehensive immigration reform. The main reason is they don't want to give legal status uh, or a path to citizenship for almost 12 million illegal immigrants in the U.S. And this crisis has really 
um, put the final nail in the coffin of comprehensive immigration reform this year. And there was a sense that maybe they could get something done, maybe some immigration reform legislation would pass the House of Representatives between uh, primary election season when the Republicans and Democrats pick their own candidates and the general election in November for the congressional midterm elections. But I think that that's dead now. Um, certainly the Republicans are coming out as the stronger in this debate. Um, Rick Perry, the governor of Texas, who is undoubtedly a, a 2016 presidential candidate on the Republican side, he uh, and Obama met in Texas last week. He's come out, uh, he's gained prominence in the last couple of days, in particular as saying, you know, we need to be more uh, forceful, we need to react better, we need to have better border patrol, um, and we need to secure the border. And that's a refrain you hear regularly from Republicans, that the border is not secure. And I think Obama has come under some pressure, in particular for not actually visiting the border last week. He said that he wanted to um, meet the, uh, the Texas governor, and they did meet eventually. Finally, Simon, what about the children themselves? What's going to happen to them? Well, um, for the time being, they're going to be held in detention centres. But I think if the Republicans get their way, you will see more and more being deported. Um, this is a challenge for the Obama administration. They have to be seen to be deal, deal sensitively with these children, but also be forceful enough that they have to act as a deterrent any moves they make to stop more children coming up from Central America. So it's a difficult situation. Uh, Obama, the Obama administration is looking for $3.7 uh, billion from Congress. Most of that will actually go to the housing of children. So I think that that's um, an acknowledgement by the administration that we're going to see children held in these detention centers for a considerable time while they accelerate the process of getting more judges and getting more cases uh, processed through the system. Simon Carswell in Washington, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can read more about today's stories on irishtimes.com and contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. Mm-hmm.